welcome to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. This is your host, Jazz Bear, and today's guest is Drs. Todd and Kim Saxton. They're an award-winning professors at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, as well as co-authors of The Titanic Effect. The book is a practical guide to help startup founders as well as investors and supporters successfully navigate the icebergs that are so often sink the startups in the ideation and early stages of development. They'll tap into decades of academic and professional experience in business strategy, entrepreneurship, marketing, market research, uh, venture-funded startups to help you navigate through the deadbergs that so often sink early-stage startups. This is part two of the interview. And if you haven't uh, checked out the part one, please do so, where they talk about risk versus uncertainty at the startup stage. And, and this, in this episode, they're going to talk about the biggest icebergs at the pre-revenue stage. So let's welcome Dr. Todd and Kim Saxton. So let's welcome Dr. Uh, Todd and Kim Saxton back this week. Last week, we talked about uh, risk versus uncertainty and stages of startup. And this week, we'll bring in, um, we'll talk about the biggest icebergs. And one of the first ones is pre-revenue stage. And um, yeah, we're going to talk a lot more in depth about that and how that really affects you if you're um, at that stage of your business. So yeah, so, so what is the pre-revenue stage? So pre-revenue stage is, is, can sometimes be very short and sometimes very long, but it's that time where you have an idea, you have a problem that you think needs to be solved and you're coming up with a way to solve it. And early on, it's really important to think about how do I get the pieces of what is ultimately going to be a company together. And so we usually think about you have to take action or you have to define steps in four domains. One is who is on the founding team. Two is what kind of customers are we aiming at? Three is where are we going to fund this from? And then four is who are we going to invite to join us, whether that's employees or others, but how, you know, once you have founders, then you also have to figure out the other human side of the puzzle. And all of this is happening before you have any money. So you're not 100% sure what the product is. You have an idea of a problem that needs to be solved and you're sorting through different ways to solve it. But exactly what that looks like is not quite known yet. It's not known enough to actually spend the money to develop a product. So really figuring out, well, what is it we should be doing? is a, a lot of the activity. And then as part of what should we be doing is what can we do? So um, this is well before you actually have a product that you could start to get people to try. I'll jump in. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, we talked last time about risk and uncertainty, and it, it's kind of very interesting because at this stage, uncertainty is, is huge, right? And trying to figure out what the product is and who you're going to sell it to. But the interesting part is we see founders in this stage for years because they haven't left their day job. They haven't taken out a loan or, or got investors. They haven't made any commitments to customers. Uh, so in some ways, there's this luxury. This is all like blue sky and upside. You, you haven't uh, taken the second mortgage and, and you're still kind of mulling over. It's some kind of, sometimes called the ideation phase. What is it that I really want to do with this thing and, and who do I you know, what is the problem I'm solving and, and whose problem or who has that problem? 
so, you know, in some ways, that uncertainty piece and what you have to navigate is, is very large in, in terms of the product and the market. But in terms of, you know, allocating equity, building the team in this stage, often founders haven't even really started to take those steps. It's still something in the back of their minds or in a folder or on the back of a napkin or you know, scrawled on a whiteboard or in their notes in their their uh, smartphone or something like that. So lots of excitement in the space, but also a lot of important questions to ask. I can give you a live example if that helps. Sure, of course, yeah. Yeah, so you may have heard of something here. There was a, a movie made about it called The Green Book. And The Green Book was a book that was made way back in the 50s and 60s by a group of African-Americans. It was kind of a guide to where it was safe to stay in various cities if you had to travel around. And in particular, the movie is about a pianist who has to go and play concerts all over the country, but it wasn't, he needed to know where can I stay? And even though that piece isn't needed, it was a physically printed book and you could buy it. Now what we have is we have you know, people who are in minorities. So it could be an ethnic minority. It could be LGBTQT or all the acronyms. I mean, it could be a religious minority as well. And still you want to know like who are the providers, whether it's restaurants, cutting your hair, you know, some hair needs specific requirements, clothing, hotels, gym clubs. Where are the folks who are very open because nobody wants to walk into what they think is going to be a good experience and discover that they're not wanted? And so, so you know that there are a group of people who are servicing minorities. You know there are minorities who are trying to buy. How do you connect those two? Should it be a book? Should it be online? Who's going to pay for it? Should the businesses pay because it's advertising or should people pay because they want to be part of a network? Right? So there's a ton of unknowns at this moment as to there's still a problem, but then how do we solve that problem? Is it an app? Is it online? You know, there's like so many things that you could try to sort out. Sorry, you can't. Uh, I had, I had yeah. a question on, on, on that, but before you, uh, sorry, you finish your... Well, so that I've been working with that startup for the last year and a half, and she now has like her first beta testers of a product. But for a year and a half, we were trying to solve how many people have this need? What do they really want? Where are groups of them that would be easier to access? What's the format for it? How much information do you need? Little things like that. As far as the idea is concerned, you know, someone, someone that thinks, for example, they're going to create a product or a service. So at the present moment, they may have just a very abstract idea, nothing in depth. How does one really become how does one have a USP, you know, in that area? A lot of, a lot of us have ideas, but what stops us is what makes me different. And, and if you look and research your market, there's never no way of knowing 100% that, you know, you've covered all bases of knowing that you have that USP. How do you do that? And I, I personally believe that's, that's one of the things that stops a lot of people thinking there's nothing special about me, my product, and they would never therefore take that next step and make it that special. I was speaking to someone who talked about building a piece of software called FreeUp. And he mentioned he took all the negatives of what's the online place for freelancers, Upwork and Fiverr.com. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, they had this minimal viable product and they, and they looked at all the bad things about, you know, Upwork and all these other services and made sure they had added those pieces. And that's what made it special. And they recently just, uh, you know, sold that company. And in your view, how does one do that, especially when it comes to you know, someone who's offering consultancy services, it's not a product which you can improve, but it's a consultancy service. 
how do you make sure you differentiate yourself and really have that USP? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, from a kind of competitive strategy perspective, um, we see all ends of the the continuum. There, we see people who you know sit down with us and say, "Oh, I've got this new thing, and nobody does it, or at least nobody does it in my area." And Kim's very good about very quickly, you know, doing a little online research on her <laughs> phone and saying, "Well, what about these guys? This looks a lot like what you're talking about." So some people haven't even done the basics, and they just think, you know, I'm I'm unique. I have a unique problem and a unique solution to it. Uh, so you know, do the basics and figure out what else is out there. Others, as you say, it's it's kind of the flip side. It's like I'm not that special. I'm sure this idea, you know, has occurred to many other people. So how am I going to solve it in kind of a unique way? And we tend to look for and encourage entrepreneurs to think about three different levels. One is kind of parity. First of all, you have to figure out what category are you in? What's the frame of reference of your market? And what are they going to associate with that? If you think of fast food, for example, sort of some things that you know you need to be able to have. It's fast, it's convenient, it's relatively inexpensive. Probably Very isn't tasty. all that yeah, tasty, but probably not all that healthy. And if you have something that people associate with fast food that isn't convenient, for example, or takes 30 minutes to, to get to, you're going to lose a big part of your market because you've associated uh, with a frame of reference that requires kind of minimum table stakes. So we call those points of parity. You've got to be at least have these elements. Then the next part is what's going to make you different? What's going to make you better? And, and oftentimes that is maybe a service level or, or the, the way you're selling it, the business model you're using, uh, or as you say, just noting problems with uh, other frameworks, other platforms that are out there and fixing them so it's a better user experience. So you learn from the first mover or some of the early movers, learn from their mistakes, do some of the things they do just as well. You don't have to do everything better. Some things you just need to be good enough, but you need to really hone in on What's the thing that I'm going to be better at than, than anybody else? Uh, and then ideally, you have your, your basically kind of your superpower, something that other companies would have a really hard time duplicating. Sometimes that's a person. Sometimes that's a secret formula. Uh, sometimes it's timing being early to market uh, or relationships with a major customer. Uh, but ideally, you basically have a uh, a, a source of, of differentiation that almost is unfair <laughs> that, that no one else can access. Yeah, I think the key is, and I think this happens to a lot of people, they think about a problem and they don't go and do some research on the problem. And that's because research sometimes feels uncomfortable and difficult for people and frequently you're going to not get the information the answer you wanted. So we shy away from things that aren't going to turn out the way we want. But Googling is a great place to start. And when I say Google, I mean, don't just think exactly what you're thinking of, but you have to kind of remember back at our generation, we didn't have Google to do research. Here's how we did research. We went to the library and we started going through the card catalog and we would say, okay, maybe I'm thinking about fast food. So you'd look in fast food and you would discover that there's nothing in the, catalog, in the card catalog under fast food. So you'd think, okay, well, it's a kind of restaurant. So then you would go look for restaurants. And then you would think, well, maybe it's a convenient restaurant. So you'd look for convenient restaurants. You have to like be very broad in what you Google, right? right. What kind of drives me crazy is people who are in the pre-revenue stage, and he already alluded to this, because I have the greatest idea in the world, blah, blah, blah. And they tell me what it is. And I take 10 variants of their idea and I Google it and I discover five competitors. <laughs> and one recently, this happened two weeks ago, 
the exact brand name that the company wanted was already taken by somebody doing somewhat similar to what they were doing. <laughs> a national scale. A national. This is a regional and there's a national company with the exact same name. <laughs> so yeah, it's a good name. Somebody already thought of it. <laughs> so that kind of early work, yeah. we were playing around with the idea of making a game out of our book, right? This idea that you could sail around and stay away from the icebergs and all that. So I thought, well, we should at least see what kind of games are out there. And within... Two days, I purchased 15 games and startups, wow. right? And they're not expensive, any of them. I mean, I think maybe the most expensive one was $35, right? So it went everything from a little card deck for five bucks to like this big board with all these pieces for $35. So then play the games, right? Mm-hmm. Use the products, get on their email lists, buy it, take it apart, see what it, it does. So some basic research. Then other places that you don't think about, a lot of universities want their students to have real projects. So try and find some hook to a local university, market research classes, love to do market research for real. Actually getting surveys filled out, at least in the United States, is not very expensive. It costs us about $5 a person. If I went to a research company, I said, I want people with these characteristics. On average, it's going to cost me $5 a person. So you get 200 strangers to fill out a survey. Right. Yeah. So at least you know. What you're saying is absolute goldmine. This is one of the things I really struggle with at at the startup, at the early stages in my business as well. And a lot of people do. It's A, first of all, where do you look? Where do you look? And I know you say Google, it's, it's, it's common sense. It's the first place to go, especially nowadays. But then here's the caveat to that. You start off typing something and the next thing you know, you end up somewhere else with that. And you realize you wasted the whole, oh, spent so much time. And you, how do you discipline yourself in, first of all, like you mentioned, if I'm, if I'm you know, a business coach, I'll search for other business coaches or, or you know, how do I increase my revenue or something along those lines. And then how do you make sure that you keep it simple? When, when, and when do you know that you've, oh, you've gone too far of, or you've gone outside that frame of work? And most people will start with, you know, let's assume that most people don't have the budget or they think they don't want to spend any money at that early stage. They just want to Google it. So how do you know that you've gone outside, you know, you're looking at something that's no longer relevant? I, I'm going to answer the question a little bit of a different way. I think one of the, the challenges that we see with entrepreneurs is, they're so anxious to present their solution. So they go to someone who they think might have the problem and they show them the solution. And the customer might go, ah, eh, that's kind of interesting. Or they might go, I don't even have that problem. I, I'm, why would I use this? You know, because I address this problem in a different way. What entrepreneurs really need to do is, is kind of research in the wild. So, you know, what we're talking about is very safe. You're in your dorm room, you're in your basement, you're in your garage, whatever, uh, and you're searching online. And, but you need to get enough inside the head of your potential customer that you understand how they view the problem and you understand what they're going to be searching for online. Um, so, you know, doing that research in the wild, going out and talking to people who resemble your actual customer just to get a better understanding of the problem itself. And that will really help you put some boundaries on, on what you search for. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of entrepreneurs love to say, uh, we're in complete white space. We're the only competitor out there do, or the only company out there offering this solution. Well, first of all, that's really lonely to be in a market all by yourself. Second, that means that your customers don't have that frame of reference. You can't say, I'm like 
this, but better. I'm like, you know, uh, Shutterfly or, or Photostock or whatever I stock. So, so there's not that frame of reference for you to anchor to, but then show how you're different and, and how you're better. So, and probably most importantly, that suggests that you, you haven't really spent enough time talking to customers about the problem and understanding how they view it because they probably have come up with some kind of solution. It might be imperfect, might be expensive, it might be, you know, duct tape and... Labor intensive. Yeah, labor intensive. But, uh, you know, for example, we have worked with a a different startup that was trying to put everything onto an app so that people would, you know, be able to enter. Well, as it turns out, their potential customers were perfectly happy with just a list on a piece of paper. And it was easy to share, it was easy to pass around and everybody could write and to spend money, particularly on an app that did this, even if it made it a little more convenient and made it digital, just wasn't in their mindset. Wasn't they they had come up with their own minimally viable solution uh, that worked perfectly well. Uh, and, and, you know, was not going to be disrupted. So, you know, those kinds of, of, of insights early on can really help you save a lot of time, but also do the right search, look for the right things and make those associations. Well, I'd like to go back to the start of your question, which is how do you go about not wasting your time? Okay, that's not wasting your time. It's actually really important to understand the landscape. The question is, do you keep track of, are you writing down notes about what happens? right? So one of the tools you can use is Google's Keyword Planner. And there are others who offer a Keyword Planner today. If you want to use the Keyword Planner on Google, you have to set up a Google Ads account. You have to put a credit card down just to even access the Keyword Planner. But it'll tell you what people are most likely to be searching for. It'll give you the words. And so usually I export that into an Excel spreadsheet. And then I go in and I search on each of those keywords and I note how many ads, sponsors ads are popping up. And then I note, well, who are those companies? I go look at their websites. I look at the top 10 list in each of those. What are they talking about? What's the substantive nature of what they've got? And I go through all those keywords and I sort of notice who keeps popping up across different keywords, right? Because some people will own a bunch of different keywords. That keyword list has to be at least 10, maybe 50, but you have to know. And you'll see some, I was just doing this for someone who has a customer retention, a customer engagement, customer engagement experience consulting business. And we were looking at customer attrition, customer retention, client retention, client uh, attrition, loyalty programs. And, you know, she's like, no, 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 I'm not doing loyalty programs. Okay. So loyalty programs are out, but you you learn what are all the words that people who are searching for the term you think you want, what are the most likely words that they would also use? Google tells you that. So what about as far as, you know, a, a client avatar is concerned? Because most people wouldn't know what their client looks like. So they'll be pretty much either coming very close to when they had that problem. So they're thinking of themselves, which is that's what I did as well, is I had someone very similar to myself in mind or probably myself in mind, not knowing it's, it's just me there. A lot of people do that. And, and sometimes that doesn't really work um, because you don't have everything. How do, you, how do you deal with that part? Yeah, so that's the technique in marketing called developing a customer persona. And so you can Google customer persona and you can find all kinds of templates about it. It's really understanding who is that user. And the best way to do it is just exactly like you said, start with a person you know who has that problem and then really flesh out who are they? What's important to them? What are their motivations in life? What are their motivations in this category? What would they call this category? Who are the competitors that they see in this category? 
what are they looking for it to accomplish? And then what you can start to do is you can have, you have to size how many people are like that. Is it just one or two or is it larger? Uh, we're working with uh, helping a group who wants to start a wellness therapy center for people with Parkinson's. They happen to be rehab therapy, um, people who are certified in Parkinson's and they've seen it work really well. So they thought, you know, there's enough people with Parkinson's that we should probably do a whole center just for those folks. And then they said, wait a minute, should it be just Parkinson's? Should it be anybody with a neurological disorder, which could be even senior citizens who are cognitively compromised, right? And so you can start to see Parkinson's, adjacencies, larger markets, and then you can do some research and discover how big are each of those markets, look at those different customers, go and talk to some of those customers, find out what's important to them, and then you can flesh out that persona. And often what you'll come up with are several persona because you won't have just one customer type that looks like you. Uh, you know, oh yeah, that avatar is actually, it. I just look in the mirror and that's, <laughs> there's my avatar. You also come, come across these bundles of everything Kim was talking about, how they view the problem, how they want to solve the problem, what they're willing to pay, uh, how much service they want as opposed to, you know, kind of self-service, those kinds of things. So you'll probably come up with two or three different persona that represent different market segments. And then you start to understand what's the, the market segment or the persona that's the best fit for the current iteration of my product. I'm not going to go after those other ones initially. I think Kim talked about this last time. I want to get 70 to 80% plus of the people who are fit that particular persona in my geographic region or whatever. And then I could start to think about expanding to these other types of individuals who have related problems or opportunities, but are a little bit different. And I'm going to have to tailor an offering to them specifically. And, and just to summarize on, on this point, so you mentioned the three key things were A, a Google, B, service. What's the third one you mentioned? There's another one you mentioned as well. What was the B one that you came up with? Oh, sorry. First was Google. Second was the service. And oh, sorry, that's it. You mentioned universities who have a University. market yes. research yeah. team. Perfect. So yeah. if someone wants to get there faster and go, right, It'll be nice to have 200 people uh, do a survey. And, and would that be the quickest way or the best way to find out if it, that's exactly your kind of people? Would you, would you say that? Yeah. I mean, we did that uh, about a year ago. We had picked up a little business that we were hoping to turn into an experiment for our MBA teams because in digital marketing, the best way to learn about digital marketing is actually to do some digital marketing. But I don't have too many places where people will let students spend money. So we picked up this little business and because it was just happened to be available and it was cheap and it was an existing business. We thought we'd do it. We'd put it in e-commerce. And about six months into having this business and trying to flesh out the unique selling proposition, uh, we did a survey and we discovered that in the United States, Indiana was the worst place to have this business. <laughs> wow. And it, in fact, it turned out that we had sold more of this particular product online to people in Montana and California, Montana for sure, than in the entire state of Indiana. Right. So, you know, it was, I think it was like $1,100 after, you know, maybe we'd spent $5,000. So, you know, then we shuttered it. We were done. <laughs> so, but we have two different teams of students that worked on it, learned from it learned that process of how do you search? What do you look for? Uh, how do you ask the questions? I, I, I wanted to come back to your question of if you had 200 people you could survey. I, I think my caveat would be you don't want to jump right to that. And Kim can speak much yeah. more eloquently about this, but 
uh, there's a difference between qualitative and quantitative research. And qualitative is much more focused, you know, either one-on-one or, or with a small group. And with a qualitative, you're kind of learning their language, learning the questions that you can and should be asking. And then you can transition to that survey. I think of an entrepreneur, even if they could go out and buy a mail list and just had an idea in their head and hadn't talked to anybody, particular customer, that first survey isn't going to produce very good results. So you need to get out. You need to talk to some customers, learn the language that they're using, better understand the problem. And I think that will set you up then for something like a survey or, you know, there are other ways like a a Kickstarter or Indiegogo where you put something up and you rely on your network and you see how many people would actually pay for this thing. And that is a really strong signal from the market as to whether uh, people will spend money. Uh, It's a very different question to say, do you like this? You know, would you buy it? You get a lot of friends like, oh yeah, that's really cool. Definitely. Uh, You know, and then you spend money developing and take it back and we're like, well, it's really cool, but I'm not going to spend $19.99 for that thing. I mean, somebody out there probably will buy it. So uh, getting that real market validation early, and, and that's another piece of that pre-revenue phase, is, is just don't rely on, you know, kind of the, the handshake and the, oh, yeah, that seems really cool. Uh, if possible, push for a, either a letter of intent that says, if you offer this product at this price, I will buy it. Or, like I said, market feedback and validation through something like a Kickstarter, where you're being very transparent with your customers that you haven't developed it yet, that it's work in process. I know some entrepreneurs, uh, this was, I think, more popular maybe five to seven years ago. They would put up a website with, for example, a bunch of uh, sunglasses and, and watches and represent as if they had all of these in inventory. But then if you went to click on it, it would say, sorry, out of stock, you know, we'll, we'll have this in two to four weeks. And all they were doing was market tests. They never built anything. They never got supply. They were just using it as a test to see what do people actually click on. And then they would take the most clicked on product and, and go build that. We feel that's a little disingenuous, a, a much uh, more transparent way to do something like that is, like I said, run a, a Kickstarter or something like that, where you're getting people to commit with full knowledge that you haven't actually built it yet. Yeah, so we call that the unnecessary solution iceberg. In the pre-revenue stage, it's really critical that before you build a product that you make sure that somebody actually wants it. Another example I'll give is we had some students who were doing meal exchange. I'm sure, you know, it's like, I like to cook, you don't like to cook, I'll make, you know, two extra meals and I'll exchange them. And they were, they were seriously ready to build an app and invest like $50,000 to build uh, the app 120 actually. to get this thing. Yeah. And we said, hey, have you tried just doing this on an Excel spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> have everybody tell you what they're going to do. You put on the Excel spreadsheet, you see how many meals you, know, you can shift off. And just like your group of 20 friends, right? How many meals changed hands do you think? This is going to be a wild, wild guess. I reckon... This is on a this is on a campus on university. Would you say is that yeah correct? yeah ten to fifteen? I'd say something like that. It was yeah. around ten. <laughs> like two well, people, two people. Right. <laughs> Out of twenty, who said, "Oh, that's really cool. I want to do that." <laughs> you know, so that that's how you get around that unnecessary solution. The other thing is you just go find where your customers are and talk to them. So one of my favorite examples that we use in the book was TRX. You know what the TRX is? 
No. Exercise strap. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, yellow. Yeah. yeah. The TRX. And so he came up with that. And what he would do as he was fix, figuring the product out and what people wanted is he would take it out. He lived in California, take it out to Venice Beach on Friday afternoons and have a cooler full of beer and say, hey, give this a whirl. Tell me what you like and what you don't like. Right. So really trying to figure out, well, is this solving a problem that people need to have solved? And but the, there's a, a cool back backstory to that. So this is Randy Hetrick, who was a Navy SEAL, and he was on assignment in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and they had this, you know, basic little hut waiting for orders. And he had a jujitsu belt and some parachute webbing. Uh, and he was bored and he wanted to exercise, but, you know, he could just do bodyweight stuff. So he made these straps and he, you know, he wedged them in the, the door of the, the little hut. And he started doing some exercises and his buddies were like, oh, that's pretty cool. I can do more than you, you know, and they got the little, uh, you know, competitive thing going. And then he was like, yeah, maybe, maybe there is something here. So when he left the SEALs, he went to business school at Stanford and used it as fodder for class projects. And then as Kim suggests, you know, just out, got out there, got in front of people, got more feedback, did a lot of, of product redesign, I think 50 or 60 different versions of it that he was was making himself. And then he started doing the rounds to professional sports teams and ended up with the uh, Drew Brees, the quarterback of New Orleans Saints, after a, a shoulder injury and surgery. And he started using it. And, uh, you know, among other reasons, I'm, I'm sure he had this miraculous recovery. So all of a sudden, just by being out, you know, spending, what, a year and a half, two yeah. years, 300, 350 sales calls to different people kind of hit that, that magic uh, combination of a very visible person who used it. And, you know, a year later, he's in the sports training rooms of the far majority of professional sports teams in the United States. Pretty cool. <laughs> what would you say, you know, what were some of the biggest mistakes, uh, you know, founders make at this stage? Well, the first one we just talked about was the unnecessary solution. And so, one of the answers to the unnecessary solution is another iceberg, which we call uh, in segmentation, poor prioritization. So early on, if we talked about those different personas, instead of trying to meet multiple different customers, wherever they are, pick one group and be perfect for them. So let's say you are doing this consultancy, you know, business productivity consultancy. Well, you don't want to do that for every industry. What industry needs productivity consulting the most? What type of person? Is it gender-based? Is it age-based? Is it experience-based? Pick a group of people that is reasonably sized so that you can make enough money, but not so large that it costs you a lot to find them and be perfect for them because you can use Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook ads, and you can target to a very, very specific profile. And so you need to know who that customer is. Prioritize one group of people over everybody else as your first experiment. You might not be right. So that's your first hypothesis that you want to be absolutely perfect for. What do they need from you? Design your product to meet their needs best. Be very prioritized and focused. We've talked a lot about the technical or, or product side of things and then the marketing side of things and customers and, and competition, but certainly want to note also that one of the big mistakes or big debt bergs, as we call them, that founders make early is allocating all of the equity and splitting it evenly between two or, or three people. Uh, and when you're at the stage in this pre-revenue where you're not even sure what the journey is going to look like, how long it's going to last, what product you're going to end up offering and who's going to end up buying it. 
you know, sitting down at the table and allocating 50% of the equity to two uh, kind of co-founders can lead to a huge challenge and debt down the road. Uh, so a couple of things that you want to do at this stage, first of all, you want to set aside an option pool. So you want to have 20 to 30% of your equity that, that is set aside specifically for future members of the management team. So don't allocate 100% of, of the pie when you are just starting your journey. You haven't even started baking the pie, let alone know what the pie is going to be, right? So that's, that's one set aside pool. Uh, second, you want to make sure that the equity vests over time. Uh, so you don't award it all up front. You have the equity earned over a period of time, typically two to four years. Uh, so in other words, if the three of us decided to start a venture, we don't really know who's going to you know, move the ball forward and who's going to get distracted by other things. Uh, so we might each have you know, 10 or 20% equity, but we don't actually earn that until we meet some milestones after a year. And then we start to allocate that equity and earn more equity as we uh, move forward, both in time, but also in hitting those milestones. So that can avoid those really awkward conversations that we call the curse of thirdsies when you have, you know, three co-founders who are, who are equally passionate about an idea and kind of share in the generation early on, they split the equity 33 and a third percent. And then for one of the three, life inevitably gets in the way and they kind of drift off. But here they are on the cap table owning a third of the company and the other two are really the ones who are, are creating the value. So that's a very hard conversation to have about that iceberg if you haven't planned appropriately. And does it make a difference, oh, sorry, or how should you choose if you don't have, uh, if it's just the one founder? Uh, first mm-hmm. of all, does that make a difference in when you're approaching uh, someone for investment? And and also, on second question on that is, you know, does it kind of, into statistically and, and, you know, in your experience, does it kind of make a difference in success of your business if it's just one partner or if it's multiple partners, at least two that's moving, moving forward? Because you can almost keep each other accountable and see what kind of value you can bring. Yeah, it's pretty rare to have one individual that can do all of the uh, kind of different things that a startup team needs to be able to do well. Uh, a, a local prominent investor calls it the the hacker, the hipster, and the huckster. Uh, so the, the hacker is the technologist, the one who like has the product, the design or, or whatever, and is good at writing code or building or engineering or whatever. The, the hipster is the guy with good hair who you know can tell the story, spin the narrative, and kind of be the face of the organization. And then the huckster is a person who's very sales-driven, wants to get out to customers, wants to sell and close deals. And, and you need each of those kind of sets of talents and again, it's pretty rare for an individual to have all of those. But you know, I want to come back. We talked about this in the last podcast uh, that you shouldn't feel that you have to have a venture that goes out and gets, in, gets investment and grows uh, significantly to be a successful entrepreneur. There are some either lifestyle businesses or self-employment where the goal is to, to be solo and to leave your, your day job and, and to be able to afford to kind of pay the rent and keep the lights on and support the family or, or whatever. And, and that's a wonderful thing and an important part of all of our economies. Uh, and, and, you know, you shouldn't feel discouraged. Uh, and, and in that case, taking on co-founders might not be appropriate. But if you're trying to launch a venture that's going through the stages we're talking about, you know, pre-revenue to early revenue traction, and then eventually to scale, it's going to turn off a lot of investors if, if you're a solo founder and haven't gotten support from some others. But more importantly, don't have some diversity of perspective, as you were talking about, people to kind of talk to and, and challenge and push back a little bit. And also people who complement you 
in terms of their experiences, their training, their view of the world, uh, and, and can kind of round out the team. Most angel investors, and that's where you're going to get your early money, are, are leery of single entrepreneurs. If you can't convince somebody to join your venture, then how are you going to convince me to put money into it? Also, what happens if something happens to you? There's no plan for the rest of the money, right? Right. And so, and it's actually really hard to build a, a startup. And so if you're there all by yourself, will you have the fortitude to get over all the barriers? Having people with you makes it easier to get over those barriers. And we know some founders who are insistent on being solo entrepreneurs. It's just really hard. And, and people will keep asking you, well, who else is on your team, right? Who else is on your team? And then they like point to a virtual team. <laughs> are those people you're paying? Or, you know, how exactly does that work? I mean, really, it's a little bit of a test. If you can't get others to join your party, then how good is your party? Wow, that's, that's, that's very, very interesting. And, you know, what's the kind of, I know you touched on this a little bit as well in, in the earlier points, uh, you know, what's the kind of best practice to make sure there's never no such thing as smooth sailing? but you can always plan, you can always make sure that you learn from others and then put it in practice. So let's say this person A is starting off tomorrow. How would you say that they can best plan so there's smooth sailing? A set of best practices, would you say? Well, so again, interacting with others, even those who have different perspectives or don't necessarily agree with you, but, but getting out in the wild, talking to customers, talking to others who have some similar experience and combining that with the the online research, learning everything you can about the market, the competition, what people are searching for, uh, all of that. I, I would say that's that's the first piece in avoiding some of these unnecessary solutions that you might uh, try and come up with and poor prioritization in the marketing ocean uh, where you're focusing on the wrong set of people. Yeah. So as a general, in the pre-revenue stage, we highly encourage people to get involved in entrepreneurship communities, mm -hmm. right? So find other people like you. Whether that is something like as simple as a Toastmasters, you know, which is about how to speak in public, but at least you find a group of people. Here we have a group called the Startup Ladies. We have a, a powder keg. I see like the Startup Nation, uh, Startup Life. There's like all kinds of pockets of entrepreneurs who, because you're going to have the same problems, you want to hear how other people solve those problems. Um, we recently went to the How I Built This Summit from NPR's Guy Raz. They have a podcast and they had an actual summit. And the power of it was all of these entrepreneurs coming together. And now they have a Facebook uh, group and people will post questions like, you know, how did you get this imported? Or how do I buy, you know, custom t-shirts? Other people have solved the same problem that you need to solve. So you should leverage their ideas. So get involved in a community early on to understand what the startup life is like, to have other mentors, advisors, and just a tribe that is having the same experience that you're having. One of the other elements I would say is uh, even in this pre-revenue ideation stage, you want to be building at least an informal advisory board. And it might take meeting, having coffee, having lunch, buying somebody uh, you know, a beer or whatever, meeting 50 to 75 people in that early phase for you to identify the, the three to five who actually offer good advice, who are patient, good mentors, good coaches, et cetera. So, uh, and, and again, I see kind of both extremes, the, the entrepreneur that has the one person they, they uh, rely on for advice or, or they haven't reached out, they haven't 
kind of become part of the community. And then other people who, you know, go and meet every week with, with somebody different and take their feedback and, and pivot and move in a new direction. And they're never maintaining any consistency of relationship with kind of a small cadre of folks. So it's going to take a lot of coffees, but what you want to be building toward is that set of three to five people who are your go-tos, who will be giving you that feedback, helping guide you, helping introduce you to their network. And hopefully they have uh, their own kind of diverse perspectives across that group so that they uh, they kind of balance uh, offering different kinds of help and support. Yeah, and ask for connections to the next three people. So I know last year I met with somebody, or maybe it was in the summer, and then I forwarded them on to somebody else. And that person recently just called me back to try and solve a problem for the person again. You know, so I mean, it's a small world. We all talk to each other. So use the connections. That's what they're there for. And uh, keep moving on. And when you do, we. Uh, kind of talk about coachability with the people we like to work with that uh, we want people to follow up, to let us know what happened, even if the idea that we suggested failed. But, you know, there are a fair number of people who we throw down some, some small challenges. We'll try this, go talk to five customers, whatever. Uh, and then the next time we get together, the next time they reach out, they shoot us an email saying, hey, can we grab coffee again? It's like, okay, what did you learn from the five customers? And it's amazing that probably a third to, to maybe even, uh, you know, 40% haven't even taken the small steps that, that we set up for them. And, and those are folks that we lose interest in, in kind of working with because either our, they don't see our advice as being very valuable, which is totally fine, but we don't want to waste their time or our time with people who aren't going to uh, kind of follow through with the, the ideas we have. And, and we also really appreciate, you know, the follow-up note with a thank you. Um, but more importantly, thank you. And I did this and here's what happened. And those are the people that we want to establish a, an ongoing relationship with and continue to help. Uh, so it's not just about building that, that advisory board. It's how you engage with them and, and how you show them that you are coachable, that you're listening and, and that you're, you're making progress. I want to share one other little piece of advice that occurred to me as he was talking. Sometimes we talk to entrepreneurs and they say, oh, before I could tell you about my idea, I need you to sign a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> my idea is so secret, I'm afraid you would steal it. <laughs> right. Not a good start. <laughs> Not a good start. In fact, you should, it's the opposite. Tell everybody under the sun, right? Don't hold it close to the vest. Share, share, share. Somebody somewhere is going to have an idea. Um, somebody is going to give you an aha moment and you holding on to an idea thinking that, you know, no one can hear this unless they're really special. It's not going to work. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you so much. We are towards the end of the episode. Is there anything you'd like to say before we uh, end today's show? Uh, no, but, but again, thanks for the opportunity. And, and to your listeners, uh, just get out there. Get out there. Get your boat in the water. Uh, you're going to have a lot of fun in the journey, even if you get washed back up on shore a couple times. Uh, and, and look for people who you enjoy to work with and have fun engaging in these activities. As Kim said, it's a, it's a slog, it's a tough journey, and you want to be with people who you enjoy working with and, and have fun with, even if uh, that means turning away some people who technically are on, on paper look really, really solid. Well said. www.titanicaffect.com. See the website. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we're not done yet. You will be back for the next episode and really looking forward to that one. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. I hope you got some great value and insights from this episode. If, and if you're someone who wants to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur, then I have some great free resources for you. If you visit www.jazzbearaurora.com, that's www.jazzbearaurora.com, and drop me a line, I will send you an ebook and also a one hour masterclass. And also, um, Go and take the Escape the 9 to 5 survey, uh, which will help you understand where you are right now um, and where the gaps are in your knowledge to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur. And if you're a business and you need help growing or if you have any uh, issues that you'd like to discuss, then yeah, once again, visit the website and I'll be more than happy to help you. Thank you for listening.